The American revolutionary spirit is nowhere stronger than it is in Philadelphia, and especially on the holy burial grounds of Christ Church, and what lies beneath are patriots, also known as revolutionaries, continentals, rebels, or Whigs. They signed the United States Declaration of Independence, declaring the United States of America an independent nation in July 1776 igniting a power keg by rejecting British rule. These patriots took part in the Revolutionary War and established the United States Constitution. These are men that put their lives and livelihoods on the line. They committed treason for the opportunity for freedom. It's what they had come to this country for, and they would have it or die trying. This is Stones, Bones, and Shadows. Friends and Taffa Files, it's Lachelle, your host, and my revolutionary co-host today is my amazing daughter, Randy. Hello, everyone. I'm so excited to finally be part of this project. Yay! I'm so excited, too. Randy's actually the one who has been to Christchurch Cemetery. I have not. Yes, we were able to go there a couple of years ago now as part of kind of an American history trip mm-hmm. um, to Philadelphia and then later to D.C. And, of course, being my mother's daughter, I had to check out the cemetery while we were there. <laughs> That's right. And as it's the week of the 4th of July, our Independence Day, we thought, what could be better to talk about than Philadelphia and Christchurch Cemetery? Christ Church, the birthplace of the American Episcopal Church, was founded in 1695 as a condition of William Penn's charter. In 1701, William Penn created a charter of privileges for the residents of his colony. Penn envisioned a colony that permitted religious freedom, the consent and participation of the governed, as well as other laws pertaining to property rights. The Charter of Privileges recognized the authority of the king and the parliament over the colony, while creating a local governing body that would propose and execute the laws. Penn clearly states the responsibilities the citizens have in selecting virtuous men to lead and govern what many would refer to as the Holy Experiment. Dating to 1744, the current building has been cited as our finest early American church and one of the finest Georgian structures in America. Its steeple built in 1754 was financed by a lottery organized by Benjamin Franklin and is the work of Robert Smith, one of America's earliest architects. For 56 years, the steeple made Christ Church the tallest structure in North America. Wow. It's a privately managed historic site that is an official component of Independence National Historical Park. It is also an active Episcopal parish 
the church hosts daily historical talks and tours and church services on Sundays. The properties there at Christ Church take you back over 320 years of American history. 250,000 tourists visit annually, making Christ Church in the top 10 things to see and do in Philadelphia. We were one of those tourists. <laughs> I love it. So there's a lot of well-known historic names that have sat in the pews of Christ Church. Here are a couple of them. George Washington, who we know was the first president of the United States and signer of the U.S. Constitution. John Adams, the second president of the United States and signer of the Declaration of Independence. Benjamin Franklin, scientist, philosopher, printer, diplomat, signer of the Declaration and the Constitution. Betsy Ross, seamstress who crafted the first American flag. Robert Morris, financier of the American Revolutionary War, signer of the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, and the U.S. Constitution. Benjamin Rush, treasurer of the U.S. Mint, signer of the Declaration. John Penn, eldest son of William Penn. Francis Hopkinson, designer of the first American flag and signer of the Declaration of Independence and lots of other members of the Continental Congresses, a convention of delegates from the 13 colonies that acted as the governing body of the United States during the American Revolution. Christ Church buried the earliest members of the congregation in the churchyard, which was a very common practice in those times. When burials began to take place on the outskirts of cities, largely to prevent disease, Christ Church located three blocks away acquired this two acre burial ground which then was on the outskirts of town in 1719. Kind of funny because now it is in the middle of the city. <laughs> <laughs> and just a couple blocks away from the church. From the church, yes. So you kind of have to do a little bit of walking to get to both. But yeah, acquired that burial ground after the small churchyard cemetery was full. In 1772, the church built the surrounding brick wall, which was rededicated in 1927. In 1864, parishioner Edward Clark became concerned about the gravestones and the deterioration of them over time. Clark mm. created a plot plan and recorded every inscription. The grounds had 1,400 grave markers. Oh, wow. A lot of graves. Can you imagine if he hadn't, he hadn't done, that? done that? It's amazing that he had the foresight back yeah. then to I mean, think of just future been generations. Gone. That's amazing. So cool. This gives us so much information today since so many of those early American headstones are worn down by time and weather. Yeah. And there are no legible writings on many of them. When we were there, we definitely noticed that. Without some of the plaques that had been put on later, we would have had no idea what, oh, what was yeah. what. Because they were all pretty much not necessarily smooth. You can maybe kind of make out a letter here mm -hmm. and there, but for the most part, very illegible. Yeah. The burial ground became the final resting place for over 4,000 members of Christ Church, including five signers of the Declaration of Independence, Benjamin Franklin, Joseph Hughes, Francis Hopkinson, George Ross, and Dr. Benjamin Rush. Also buried on these sacred grounds are many of our nation's early leaders, prominent lawyers, medical pioneers, military heroes, and victims of the yellow fever epidemic. Oh no, not yellow, <laughs> yellow fever, fever again. <laughs> Oh, the yellow fever. 
I seem to keep coming back to that subject. Yeah, I have a feeling that as we continue with the podcast, we're going to circle back to yellow fever many times. Yes. I mean, it goes to show you how much of an impact it made during those times. And mm-hmm. you know, speaking of death and where people are laid to rest, how many truly yeah. suffered and, and died because of it. Mm-hmm. The burial ground was closed to the public from 1977 through 2003. In 2002, Christ Church Preservation Trust undertook a major program of renovation to reopen the site to the public. Projects included restoring 150 grave markers, which for many meant pinning and mortaring broken pieces, rebuilding parts of the exterior brick wall, and landscapers tended the overgrown grounds. They removed ivy, pruned trees, created new paths, and installed turf. Which I'm kind of funny and I kind of like the overgrown grounds just a mm-hmm. little bit. <laughs> Gives it a certain atmosphere. Same. But you could see how it would get out of control really fast. So that's yes. amazing that they preserved it so well. So they were then reopened to the public just in 2003. It hasn't been that long. The trust expanded its tourism program from Christchurch to the Christchurch burial ground. So there's an admission cost of $5 so that they can have tour guides and tour maps. It helps contribute to the ongoing preservation. It is an expensive task as they realized by the recent Benjamin Franklin grave marker restoration project. And if you would like to contribute to their burial ground preservation work or to the care of a specific grave marker, You'll find a link in our website, stonesbonesandshadowspodcast.com, along with our sources and lots of amazing photos of this church and cemetery that Randy took. Yay! (laughs) She's the photographer on this uh, episode. Aspiring. I try. You do great. (laughs) We're going to talk today about two of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, two Benjamins, one Franklin and one Rush. One really well-known and the other one, not so much. So Randy, she's going to take the reins and tell us about Benjamin Franklin. In this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Benjamin Franklin. I thought that was perfect, considering my husband's a CPA. And we talk about death. And we talk about death. So, I don't know. Death and taxes worked for me. (laughs) The tombstones of Benjamin and Deborah Franklin are easily the most visited in the cemetery. Benjamin Franklin was one of the leading figures of early American history, was a publisher, statesman, author, inventor, scientist, and diplomat. He did everything. (laughs) He did it all. He was crazy. Benjamin's family was a large one. His father's name was Josiah Franklin, and he had a total of 17 children. Wow, I thought we had a big family. (laughs) I can't even. (laughs) His first wife, Anne Child, and he had seven children together. After she passed away, Josiah was married to Abiah Folger, Benjamin's mother, and had 10 children with her. Wow. Benjamin was their eighth child was Josiah Franklin's 15th child and his 10th and final son. So let's just think about that for a second. I mean, 
if he hadn't remarried and thought, I've already got seven kids, I don't need to have any more. I mean, he was way down the line. He was his 15th right. kid. Right. I don't know. That just kind of blows me away. I mean, he had 10 sons before. <laughs> I have two sons. Or nine and sons Wow. Before. I just can't imagine 10 sons. Ten That's sons. awesome, though. It kind of makes you wonder what his family dynamic was like, you know, being so young on mm -hmm. in that line of siblings. But True. he did well. I mean, Franklin's formal education ended when he was 10, but he was a voracious reader and taught himself to become a skilled writer. At the age of 12, he was made a printer's apprentice to his older brother, James. By age 16, Franklin contributed essays that were published under the pseudonym Silence Do Good to his own brother's newspaper, who apparently <laughs> had no idea that it was his own brother the whole time. Yes. And they're like, oh, this guy is great. Can you imagine? Kind of, I pictured this bratty kind of younger brother, like <laughs> sneakily writing into your newspaper and you raving about him while he's like, Silence yeah. do good. Oh, geez. At age 17, Franklin ran away from his apprenticeship. Apparently that didn't go over too well, and he went to Philadelphia, <laughs> where he found work there as a printer. Benjamin Franklin later opened his own printing shop. He had much success and produced things like government pamphlets, books, and even currency. In 1729, Franklin became the owner and publisher of his own newspaper, the Pennsylvania Gazette. Mm. He put his writing skills to work and wrote many of the articles himself often using pseudonyms. <laughs> Franklin also published Poor Richard's Almanac every year from 1733 until 1758. The almanac became known for its witty sayings, which often had to do with the importance of diligence and frugality. Sayings that we're familiar with now, yeah. such as early to bed and early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. And I, I don't know if I remembered that he said that. I did not either until I reread it. And then I was like, oh, yeah, I looked up a bunch of his sayings, his quotes. And wow, they're, so first many. of all, prolific. There's a billion <laughs> of them. Second of all, they're really common sense. They're really good. And he just was really smart. Kind of cool that we still use them today. Like they're still in common yeah. kind of... The um, early bird gets the worm. Right. Stuff like that. People still use those and they don't even know where they are. Right. Hundreds you know, of where years ago. From. Benjamin Franklin was years ahead of his time. Mm -hmm. He lined out a government model for the United Colonies that would later become the USA in the 1750s, mm. 20 years before the actual Declaration of Independence. Oh, wow. Always thinking ahead and for the future, right? Yeah. Until the very end, he kept up his visionary thinking, putting forward a petition in 1790, the year that he died, stating the U.S. government had to uphold the liberty of the American people without distinction of color. Mm. He wanted to abolish slavery, something that would actually happen 75 years later. So again, forward thinking. In 1730, Franklin began living with Deborah Reed, the daughter of his former Philadelphia landlady, as his common-law wife. Deborah Reed, who he had courted before going to England, had married Roger Potter during his absence. In 1727, Potter had abandoned her when he fled to Barbados to avoid paying his debts and never returned. Ugh. <laughs> so she's just stuck married to this man 
due to bigamy laws, she and Franklin could never officially marry. How sad. <sighs> Which is terrible. So in those days, you know, sometimes you couldn't obtain a divorce. You couldn't right. cite reasons for abandonment or abuse or anything like that. They took off and you were stuck being married to them. So she either had to be a bigamist or a common law wife. Right. I don't know. It's just... It's just kind of not sad, a lot but... of rights, especially for for the wife that's left behind. Mm-hmm. You know, the husband. I wonder if a husband a could have done that. Probably. <laughs> I, <laughs> Unfortunately. I mean, I'm sorry, but I kind of feel like a man could have been like, yeah, she took off and left me and I'm going to get a divorce. We're going to have to look into that. We are. But I have a feeling. Yeah, that usually is how these things go around that time. Mm-hmm. Around the time that they married, Franklin took custody of his first son an illegitimate child, William, whom Deborah was pivotal in raising. The name of the mother remains a mystery. Hmm. I read somewhere that it was a low woman. So I'm wondering if maybe prostitute or sure something like that. Someone in and society like, that's generally looked more down upon. Here, I can't upon. take care yeah. of this child. You are well-to-do here. Something. You know, something like that sounded like. Remains a mystery. Yeah. The couple had two children. The first was Francis Folger Franklin, born October 1732. The second, Sarah Franklin, born in 1743. In 1736, Francis, who was at the tender age of four years old, died from smallpox. Aww. I love four years old. Aww. They're so So sweet. sweet. He had not been inoculated. Inoculation had proven successful after the 1721 outbreak in Boston, where 5,889 Bostonians had smallpox and 844 died of it. Franklin wrote about it in his autobiography. In 1736, I lost one of my sons, a fine boy of four years old, by the smallpox taken in the common way. I long regretted bitterly and still regret that I had not given it to him by inoculation. This I mention for the sake of the parents who omit that operation on the suspicion that they should never forgive themselves if a child died under it. My example showing that the regret may be the same either way and that, therefore, the safer should be chosen. So kind of a little warning, like learn from my mistakes. Save your own babies. Oh, that's so sad. Franklin had an awesome way to integrate himself into learning every single day. He created a five-hour rule for himself, spending one hour each weekday on reading, writing, setting goals, coming up with ideas, talking with like-minded people, and reflecting. I think that's something that we all could be better at, taking that time for ourselves. And I kind of feel like this is something you would do. (laughs) This is actually something I do kind of do. (laughs) Maybe not quite a strict five-hour rule, but I'm a big journaler. Definitely a goal setter, mm-hmm. writing down my ideas, uh, definitely is something that I can relate to. Um, yeah. And with one hour a day doing each of those little things, writing, setting goals, thinking, talking with people, you know, he was networking and like, what do you think of this idea or this invention? Kind of a constant brainstorming session. I just, I'd love to see into his brain. I mean, he did everything. It just had to have been whirling like a thousand miles an hour all the time of just 
his ideas and what he wanted to do next. I feel like that sometimes. Yes. And I have lots of different interests and things I want to find out about. And you want to do it all, right? So I would love to talk to Benjamin Franklin. I kind of put Benjamin Franklin in a similar category as I put some of the Renaissance greats. Yes. Like I think of him as an equivalent type of person to like Da Vinci, for yes. example. Because he's the same way, like interested in so many things and constantly progressing and making discoveries and inventions yeah. and art. And, you know, it's just, it's really kind of cool. Those individuals throughout history that really stand out as those bright minds and, mm-hmm. and spirits. So kind of cool. He was a genius. Absolutely. Franklin was also always involved in civic affairs. Starting in the 1730s, he helped establish a number of community organizations in Philadelphia, including a lending library. So we just take for granted going to the libraries nowadays, especially with all of our technology. But at the time, it was founded in 1731, books weren't widely available in the colonies. It was really an important thing. It remained the largest U.S. public library until the 1850s. That was one of so cool. your favorite things to do when you were a little girl. <laughs> From the time you were walking, I took you to the library. <laughs> I still love my books, for sure. We do. So we have Benjamin Franklin to thank for that ease of yeah. access. So He helped start the city's first fire company, a police patrol, and the American Philosophical Society, Ooh. a group devoted to the sciences and other scholarly stuff. <laughs> scholarly stuff. <laughs> Uh, fire company too. We kind of gloss over that, but I mean, he was also the fire department. A, 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 the fire department, and well, and honestly, was the person that came up with the idea of fire departments. I have actually listened to a few other podcasts, kind of about this time, and mm-hmm. it seems silly to have to come up with the idea for fire departments, right? But the things, police force, yeah, the, the library, but these public kind of common good programs had to start somewhere and it was like Mm -hmm. cities were burning to the ground Mm -hmm. so maybe we should come up with an organization that can kind (laughs) of help with this so kind of cool franklin also organized the pennsylvania militia raised funds to build a city hospital and spearheaded a program to pave and light city streets additionally franklin was instrumental in the creation of the academy of philadelphia a college which opened in 1751 and became known as the University of Pennsylvania in 1791. Franklin also was a key figure in the colonial postal system. I think a lot of people know that he was like our first postmaster. (laughs) And that happened in 1737, where the British appointed him postmaster of Philadelphia. Hmm. And he went on to become, in 1753, joint postmaster general for all of the American colonies. In this role, he instituted various measures to improve mail service. However, the British dismissed him from the job in 1774 because he was deemed too sympathetic to colonial interests. Which, I mean, true. He kind of was. (laughs) In July 1775, the Continental Congress appointed Franklin the first Postmaster General of the United States, giving him authority over all post offices from Massachusetts to Georgia. I swear I did not know that at all. It's amazing. He held this position until 1776, when he was seceded by his son-in-law. And did you know that the first U.S. postage stamps 
issued on July 1st, 1847, featured images of Benjamin Franklin and George Washington. I did not. <laughs> the things you, things you learn. learn. In 1748, Franklin, then 42 years old, had expanded his printing business throughout the colonies and became successful enough to retire. This allowed him the time and freedom to concentrate on public service and his longtime interest in science. In the 1740s, he conducted experiments that contributed to the understanding of electricity and invented the lightning rod, which protected buildings from fires caused by lightning. In 1752, he conducted his famous kite experiment and demonstrated that lightning is electricity. He was also the first to store electricity from a lightning strike in a so-called Leyden jar, in which he connected to and called a battery. How amazing that he had a, a battery. Battery. In 1750, you don't Whoa. think of batteries. But he also coined that term, as we know it, as well as mm. charge and conductor. Did not know that. Franklin was a true Renaissance man, as we kind of discussed earlier. Yes. He truly was. He had a wide range of interests. He also studied a number of other topics, including ocean currents, meteorology, causes of the common cold, and refrigeration. And none of those like are to do none with of those have other. anything to do with each other. So Renaissance man. He developed the Franklin stove, which provided more heat while using less fuel than other stoves, and invented bifocal eyeglasses, which allow for both distance and reading use. I use mine daily. <laughs> Thank you, Ben Franklin. In the early 1760s, Franklin invented a musical instrument as well. It was called the glass harmonica. Of course he did. <laughs> we talked about that whole spectrum of renaissance and music, art, creativity, yeah. as well as the science is kind of part of that. And this musical instrument uses a series of glass bowls or goblets graduated in size to produce musical tones by means of friction. Instruments of this mm. type are known as friction ideophones. Hmm. This kind of reminds me of Miss Congeniality. I'm not going to lie, when she plays the wine glasses. Yeah. But, you know, Ben Franklin did it first. So <laughs> composers such as Beethoven, Mozart wrote music for Franklin's harmonica. Wow. However, by the early part of the 19th century, the once popular instrument had largely fallen out of use. You should definitely look it up on YouTube. It's really cool. Sounds like when you rub your finger around a crystal goblet, mm -hmm. kind of like a bell, flute, or even kind of like an organ. So they're still around today. Somewhere. Some have them, and you can yeah, listen to them. check that out. In 1754, at a meeting of colonial representatives in Albany, New York, Franklin proposed a plan for uniting the colonies under a national congress. In 1757... Franklin traveled to London as a representative of the Pennsylvania Assembly to which he had been elected. After a brief period back in the U.S., Franklin lived primarily in London until 1775. While he was abroad, the British government began in the mid-1760s to impose a series of regulatory measures to assert greater control over its American colonies. In 1766, Franklin testified in the British Parliament against the Stamp Act of 1765, which required that all legal documents, newspapers, books, playing cards, and other printed materials in the colonies carry a tax stamp. Although the Stamp Act was repealed in 1766, 
additional regulatory measures followed, leading to ever-increasing anti-British sentiment and eventual armed uprising in the American colonies. And I just keep thinking about the George III parts. <laughs> and Hamilton. And <laughs> I, I can think about whenever I'm reading this, I keep thinking about Hamilton. Well, like when you're reading John Adams, I can't say his name without going, John Adams. <laughs> I just can't do it. I was like, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> John Adams. <laughs> Franklin returned to Philadelphia in May 1775, shortly after the Revolutionary War had begun, and was selected to serve as a delegate to the Second Continental Congress. America's governing body at the time. In 1776, he was part of the five-member committee that helped draft the Declaration of Independence, Hmm. in which the 13 American colonies declared their freedom from British rule. That same year, Congress sent Franklin to France with the intent to enlist their support with the Revolutionary War. In February 1778, the French signed a military alliance with America and went on to provide soldiers, supplies, and money that proved critical to America's victory in the war. As minister to France, Franklin helped negotiate and draft the 1783 Treaty of Paris that ended the Revolutionary War. In 1785, Franklin left France and returned once again to Philadelphia. The U.S. Constitution was ratified by the required nine states in June of 1788, and George Washington was inaugurated as America's first president in April 1789. Woot woot. Franklin died just one year later wow. in Philadelphia at age 84 on April 17, 1790. The cause of his death was complications brought on by attacks of pleurisy, which he had suffered earlier in his life. Reportedly, Franklin's last words were, a dying man can do nothing easily. Seems like he felt like even dying was difficult. Yeah. Hmm. Newspapers in Boston said that Franklin had been ill for several weeks. His funeral was attended by an estimated 20,000 people, and he was buried in Philadelphia's Christ Church Cemetery. In his will, he left money to Boston and Philadelphia, which was later used to establish a trade school and a science museum and fund scholarships and other community projects. Either write something worth reading or do something worth writing. Something he lived his whole life for and by. Another one of his sayings was, They who can give up essential liberty to obtain a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So, So much wisdom. It's been more than 200 years since his death, and yet Franklin remains one of the most celebrated figures in U.S. history. His image appears on the $100 bill. Towns, schools, businesses across America are named for him. Mm-hmm. Randy, did you know that we even have an ancestor named for him? I remember this now, but I had <laughs> totally forgotten. His name was Benjamin Franklin Brock. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> A namesake mm-hmm. a couple hundred years later. Yeah. When Benjamin Franklin died... He was buried along with his wife, Deborah, and their two children, Francis and Sarah, in a family plot in the northwest corner of the grounds. A simple marble ledger tablet has been his gravestone all these years. A marble stone, it's about three by four feet, 
lain over their graves and inscribed simply with Benjamin and Deborah Franklin, 1790. Mm. It's a really pretty marble slab. It's kind of white and gray, very like clean and polished, Mm -hmm. especially compared to kind of a lot of the stones there Mm -hmm. that are just more simple stone. And nothing fancy. No big inscription, epitaph. No big sculpture or anything. It it was very simple and kind of clean and it, it was just nice. So I saw in a picture that it was kind of next to a gate right? a fence. Yes. So they made kind of this gate in the brick wall right along the edge where his grave is. So it allows people to be able to see it from the outside passing by and not necessarily okay. have to go into the cemetery. So you're walking down see. the sidewalk and you can just kind of turn to the side and... And see it there. And there's a nice inscription, um, kind of plaque on the outside of the wall Mm -hmm. that tells a little bit about him. And I believe it has a quote by George Washington. So 16 years ago in December 2005, to honor Franklin's 300th birthday, Mm -hmm. Christchurch Preservation Trust constructed a new brick path around the Franklin family graves. It also added a marble surround that contains the original inscriptions for John Reed, who is Franklin's father-in-law, Francis Franklin, and Emma Mary Bach. They also hired architectural conservators to repair a significant crack that threatened the integrity of Franklin's grave marker. The team also restored other areas of deterioration at the Franklin family plot, including the Franklin tablet's marble face which has a pitted surface. Do you know why it was so pitted? No. It's because of the practice of throwing pennies on Franklin's grave. Oh. So a homage to his saying, a penny saved is a penny earned. Oh. And when we were there, even though it was after the repairs, there it's still covered in pennies. <laughs> <laughs> so that practice hasn't stopped. <laughs> you know, at a lot of cemeteries that I go to, I will see a penny or a quarter or a dime just as a little something token. that yeah a little offering that I was here and so that makes total sense that it's pennies it's kind of cool but kind of sad at the same time that it's now all pitted because of all the right. tossing of pennies maybe we just need to set them down softer <laughs> or yeah, put them on like the the side of the gravestone <laughs> yeah. The trust raised $76,000 for the work. An interesting side note, a successful crowdsourcing campaign was largely funded by rocker John Bon Jovi and his (laughs) wife, Dorothea. That is is awesome. Funny kind of twist in the story. Love it. At a public ceremony in April 2017, the trust unveiled the restored family plot. So when you went in 2019, you saw the restored we did and you could see evidence of a crack like you could see kind of the crack going Mm, down mm -hmm. but it was you know it was smooth and wasn't super noticeable unless you were kind of you know up close and paying attention to it but now that we learned this I, I can now know what that was from yeah that is so cool I really learned a lot about Benjamin Franklin and I felt like I knew quite a bit about him right before he's not like you said, a lesser-known historical figure. He mm-hmm. is very much still present in our schools and our history, 
but there was just so many things that he yeah. accomplished. So cool. And it was very amazing to see his grave. You know? How did you feel when you were there? And it just felt very calm. It was very like pretty calm, peaceful area. Mm-hmm. Very old. Like I just, I get this feeling when I'm walking through very old mm-hmm. places, especially places that are steeped in history of just kind of, I don't know, surreal in a way. But you really think about the people that made such a huge impact, even on our lives today. We're walking here. They were living here. They yeah. are now laid to rest here. Um, so that kind of surreal feeling um, definitely could be felt there. And in Christchurch, they have the plaques of which families sat in which pews. So it says... George Washington's family pew, you can literally see or sit where George (laughs) Washington sat. My butt cheeks are the same (laughs) spot where George's butt cheeks were. (laughs) Oh my gosh. True. You know, you think you're kind of walking in these figures' footsteps. And it was kind of like that in a lot of places in Philadelphia around Liberty Hall where the declaration was drafted and signed and all of these places. They had plaques several different places on the brick and the cobblestone sidewalks that would say even later Abraham Lincoln stood here when he gave this address George Washington Mm. stood here when this happened and so you could stand in the exact Mm. spot that these people were and it did it just kind of gave you chills like a time warp it is yes that's one of my favorite things to say on a lot of my travel things and my photos is I don't travel I time travel because I want to go back to learn about the history of the places that I visit. My blog, The Renaissance Blonde, like I very much yeah. kind of connect to that Renaissance idea. Right. Of just always wanting to learn and always being curious. I feel that way too. And there's so many times that I can tell you that I've been standing in a really historical spot that a bunch of stuff has gone down. Mm-hmm. And you feel it. You can feel it. There's an energy there, and I think it takes kind of a certain type of person to Mm -hmm. tap into that energy, Mm -hmm. and if you weren't paying attention, maybe you wouldn't know, but I have felt that so many times, and, you know, Mm -hmm. been to some very historic places, Colosseum in Rome was a place that I I felt that same way, walking down some of the streets in the Forum, that they're like, Caesar walked down the street, and you're like, these are the same stones, like, I'm stepping on the same stones. It's hard not to... Place yourself in that time or in that frame of mind. I was thinking the other day about being an empath Mm -hmm. and loving cemeteries. And I've talked to several other people that love cemeteries and are also somewhat or extremely empathic. Yes. And so it also makes me wonder, is there a relation there? I think so. Is it because of the feelings that you have there you would think it would just be extremely sad feelings but that's not what I get when I go to the cemetery I feel more about their their lives the loves the connections I don't know so that's just one of my and like on kind of a sort of supernatural note I feel like people that maybe would say oh I'm a medium or I'm somebody that you know Mm. can read energies are also empaths because you Mm -hmm. can you can kind of feel an energy 
from certain people that oh, is positive or sure. negative or, you know, and kind of play into that. And I think places somehow can hold those same types of energies. This is Kooky a whole... as that may sound. No. Uh, I, no. I truly have experienced that and believe that myself. That's totally a little bit of a rabbit hole that we just all yes. went down. But interesting. But interesting. <laughs> um, if we're kind of tying it back to Philadelphia and that, you know, there is also that other memorial I shared with you. <gasps> oh, that that's is, right. There's, you know, the tomb of the unknown soldier. Other places. But this one is the tomb of the unknown soldier for the Revolutionary War. And it is a memorial on top of a mass burial site mm-hmm. of many unknown soldiers that died during the revolution mm. and um, it was very very beautiful it had a whole marble kind of slab um, a little poem and then an eternal flame there mm-hmm. but going there was very much like that just walking up it was like you could tell that there was a lot of energy there and I just would mm. I was it was just goosebump goosebump like it just waves waves Ooh, waves I'm over and right over and I I couldn't really know why like I didn't you know Mm -hmm. read anything super personal I didn't really you know it was just kind of a simple thing but I I just could not stop with the goosebumps and like the tears and Porter my husband comes up and it's like what's going on like are you okay and I just like this is a little much right here it's amazing a lot of feelings going on this is this is really important and this is this is a lot yeah. And so I didn't spend a lot of time there because it was just like that flood mm-hmm. of emotion and energy. It was very cool to have that experience, mm-hmm. but also, yes, it can be kind of overwhelming. For isn't there like, <laughs> isn't there thousands? Wasn't yeah, thousands yeah. of men that are buried in that park. It's in that just park. it's green and trees, but that was one of, if I remember the history right, that there was some battles and things taking place like in Philadelphia and in the streets there. And during wars, sometimes you just have to bury your dead. Right. Where they are. Where they are. And without that true recognition. Mm -hmm. And so they had the one tomb that was above ground of the one soldier that represented Mm -hmm. the many. That is really cool. The next story that we have was about Benjamin Rush, and he's the one that going in, I knew nothing about. He was a blacksmith's son. He didn't come from money. He was born in December of 1745 in Byberry, Pennsylvania, just 12 miles from Philadelphia. His father died when he was six, and his mother placed him in the care of his maternal uncle, who was a reverend, Dr. Finley. In 1759, he attended the College of Philadelphia, which is now Princeton, where he got his Bachelor of Arts degree at the age of 14. It's amazing. (laughs) He got his MD at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. After receiving his medical degree in 1768, Rush spent several months training at St. Thomas's Hospital in London where he had the opportunity to attend dissections by William Hunter and to meet Benjamin Franklin, 
who was then in London. So cool. Franklin persuaded Rush to take a trip to France in early 1769, which he partially funded and which gave Rush the opportunity to meet French physicians and scientists. And the two Benjamins would remain lifelong friends. I didn't know that they really knew each other that well. That's kind of cool. Right. After a few years in Europe studying and practicing medicine, he returned to Philadelphia in 1769. Rush opened a private practice, and he was appointed the first professor of chemistry at the College of Philadelphia, making him the first professor of chemistry in America at the young <laughs> age of 23. 23. I can't imagine now having my chem professors in college be 23. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Starting his practice and trying to make a living and a name for himself as a doctor, Rush needed to treat everyone. He needed to treat poor patients. And that meant treating patients of all races and economic status. So it's not surprising that he became the founding father that advocated for and worked toward equality. He was astonished by racial and religious prejudice. Rush also kept busy outside of medicine, publishing a tract on the evils of the enslaved people trade and how we should avoid prejudice of any kind. Rush helped organize the first anti-slavery society in America. Something else him and Benjamin Franklin had in common. Yeah. Maybe they even talked about that. Yeah. Come to support a, one another and yeah. To a meeting of the minds. Benjamin Rush was soon beloved in the city. His practice was successful, his classes were popular, and he further began to engage in writing that would prove to be of considerable importance to the emerging nation. In 1773, he contributed editorial essays to the paper about the Patriot cause and also joined the American Philosophical Society. And pretty much as I read about all those that signed the Declaration of Independence, they were all in this society. Very like-minded individuals, mm -hmm. seems. And also, it seemed to me that they were all really intelligent. Right. The intelligence level of our founding fathers was kind of a notch above. They seemed more intelligent, <laughs> can I say, than just the, <laughs> the regular folks of their time and probably our times. He was active in the Sons of Liberty in Philadelphia. He was an early and active American patriot. And it is said that Rush was a major influence on Thomas Paine in the writing of his classic text on American independence, Common Sense. Oh, yeah. Interesting. We know this. In June of 1776, he was elected to attend the provincial conference to send delegates to the Continental Congress. He drafted a resolution urging independence and was soon elected to represent Philadelphia that year in the Continental Congress. And so he got to sign the Declaration of Independence. Signing the Declaration was a scary and risky thing for them to do. They knew it was treason. Right. And Rush, as well as the other men there, they made the boldest move that anyone could make. I mean, it was akin to risking their lives, really. Yeah. And they were all well off. They had prosperous businesses. They had a lot to risk. Right. And then, of course, their very lives. <laughs> Benjamin Rush, it is said that he loved to write. He had many notebooks and took notes on everything he saw and did. So it just took journaling to a whole <laughs> new level. I'm like, that's 
That's a little bit of Randy in there, too. I see that. I respect that, Mr. Rush. While you're sitting and you're like, oh, so-and-so is wearing a red dress today with black hose and white shoes. No. No. Reminds me of my spy notebooks as a kid. I forgot about them. I still have many of them. There's like three full notebooks of just like notes about my neighbors. Like small little creepy child (laughs) is it just like that it's like you know so and so you wanted to be junie b jones yes i did and and uh harriet the spy that was my that was my best harriet the spy and you know i'd be like so and so you know neighbor boy is wearing jeans and a quicksilver t-shirt like these were like of utmost importance You get, you get this. I do. Uh, so, you know. Well, this was helpful. So maybe someday your little writings could be helpful because many of the things we know about these lesser known signers of the declaration are because he wrote notes, his little notes on the Congress floor. Oh, that's kind of cool. what he noticed about people. It was said that Rush was well-spoken. He was a gentleman and supposedly attractive. But it was also said that he could be gossipy and he was pretty judgmental about other people. He was beyond opinionated and felt that he made superior decisions. During the War for Independence in 1777, he was appointed Surgeon General of the Middle Department of the Continental Army. He served one year. He was really critical of the administration of the Army Medical Service under Dr. William Shippen. He felt that the hospitals were being mismanaged and he complained to General Washington, who I'm sure was like, dude, I'm trying to run a war here. Just take it up. Yeah, take it up with Congress. Ultimately, Congress upheld Shippen and Rush just resigned in disgust. My way or the highway. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He was not having it. He's like, fine, not doing it. And I guess he wasn't able to totally let it go because then he wrote an unsigned, air quotes, anonymous letter to Governor Patrick Henry of Virginia, just really questioning Washington's abilities as the army commander. They had suffered quite a few defeats in that recent time, and he just slammed Washington. Unfortunately, Washington heard about this letter and attributed it to Rush and understandably was pretty upset and he considered that completely being disloyal. And so this stained Rush's reputation, many would say even until recent times. Um, He went back to teaching and practicing medicine. Something that I thought was really interesting about Benjamin Rush was that He worked for many years in the Pennsylvania hospital, and it was the first hospital in the country. And it was one of the first places that people with mental illnesses could be treated away from their homes. I mean, even recognizing mental illnesses as an illness back then is Mm -hmm. steps above. Yes. Early accounts of medical hospitals everywhere are unbelievable to us in our times can't believe that they actually did the things that they did but they just had no idea how to treat those with mental illness and they tried and 
They had a place for them to go, but they were treated inhumanely. They were thought to be impervious to cold and heat. Like they're superhumans? Right. like Subhuman? Because they have mental problems. They can't feel the cold. That's wild. I think so too. They were just giving straw to sleep on. Sometimes they were chained to the floor. I mean, in a lot of ways, they were treated like animals. Right. You know, if you thought, oh, tied them up, you know, rope in their pen with straw, like that's be what fine. you would do with a goat. Right. You know, not a human being. But like you said, it was a step above because for centuries they were just thought to be possessed of devils. So he did right. have that, you know, we're going to take them in and we're going to try and do things for them. He's actually called the father of modern psychiatry. Wow. He did much good in his time toward the humane and gentle treatment of the mentally ill. After the revolution, Rush started taking control of their treatment at the Pennsylvania Hospital. He worked for funding for better care, tried to get people to understand that both mental illness and alcohol addiction were medical problems and that they were just as worthy of treatment as any other physical ailment. This was a pretty new idea for those times. Rush tried to destigmatize these afflictions and tried to get people into the hospital for treatment. The history of modern mental health can really be started with Benjamin Rush. He wrote a book called Medical Inquiries and Observations Upon the Diseases of the Mind, published in 1812. This was the first written work on psychiatry in America for many years. While studying psychiatry, Rush devised kind of some curious instruments. And I don't know exactly how they all worked, but one was a chair and there was kind of a thing put over their head and they were held really still and it was supposed to help them like rid their mind of the illness and thoughts. Interesting. Forced stillness. That was kind of strange. Almost like Um, a straight jacket type idea. Kind of like a straight chair is what it looks like. More like like a treatment and not just like a detaining device. That's odd. It, it was, and I found a picture of it and a little blurb. I'll put this on the blog as well so you can see what I'm talking about. There was also something called the gyrator based on the principle of centrifugal action to increase cerebral circulation. So I'm, Interesting. I'm not sure if that's spinning a person. That's what or it sounds like is some sort of yeah, around. Make your brain. A centrifuge is what they use in labs to separate by fast, fast spinning. So it almost seems like applying that. That's from chemistry. I mean, I guess he is a chemistry professor. Okay. Okay. But applying it to a person seems a little odd. It's like separating the illness from the body or something. Yeah, really weird. And then something called the tranquilizer. And he said it was to obviate these evils of the straight waistcoat, which I'm assuming is a straight jacket, right? Right, yes. And at the same time, to obtain all the benefit of coercion. So it's like not having to really use a straight jacket, but to also make them to do the things you want them to do. And what I read said that they were instruments that provided a form of shock therapy. Which has still been even used in very... I mean, still is probably being used today, actually, Mm -hmm. in some regard. Right. 
So this was interpreted as affecting cures according to his theory involving nervous states. So while he was ahead of his time in some areas of thought, he was kind of quite behind or, you know, right. misled in other the... things. But, you know, they were trying and that's, I mean, it was practicing medicine. There's still so much we don't know about the human body. So, And uh, mental health is still an area that mm -hmm. is in need of making more strides. I mean, there's still mm -hmm. a lot unknown about it. Yeah. So... Striving for a simple explanation of disease, Rush came to his theory that all diseases were really just one medical problem, a fever brought on by overstimulation of the blood vessels. Okay. All right. So, you know, there, there aren't these separate illnesses. It is all one thing, and it's all just overstimulation of blood vessels, and use the remedy depletion by bloodletting and purging. Okay. Yeah. We've heard this before. <laughs> yep. And so the worse the fever, he believed the more heroic the treatment was called for. In the epidemics of yellow fever that afflicted Philadelphia in the 1790s, his cures were sometimes more dreaded than the diseases themselves. Right. One of the things he used during yellow fever was mercury. Oh, good, 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 yeah, good. As a way good. to rid the body of the illness. And I guess it did. In a way. Yeah, we obviously <laughs> know today that mercury and metals are poison to the right. human body. But mercury was used for centuries at all levels of society in its liquid form, quicksilver, or as a salt. And it was called calomel, as they called it also known as mercurous chloride. It was used sometimes to help you purge, AKA vomiting or diarrhea. And also like in drooling, it would make the person, a person that is being poisoned by metals, drools copious oh amounts. It's like foaming at the mouth almost. So they would like, literally measure the amount that a person would drool and the more they drooled, the better they thought. Can you only imagine how much water that they're in times that you're also vomiting and have diarrhea? Yeah, so he prescribed this heroic treatment with up to five to ten times the usual doses of mercury. And he actually called it heroic depletion therapy. You can imagine how helpful this was in the treatment of yellow fever. Oh. I know, that's all you can really say. <laughs> it's is just like, oh... So I found the best book. It is called Quackery, A Brief History of the Worst Ways to Cure Everything by Lydia King, MD, and Nate Peterson. I'm sure he made a guest appearance in this book. <laughs> yeah, yes, he does. <laughs> so they say in the book, quote, ultimately it was Dr. Rush's influence on improving Philadelphia's standing water problem and sanitation by itself. Calomel seems fairly innocuous, an odorless white powder. But don't be fooled. It's as harmless as your khaki-clad next-door neighbor who hides a basement full of bone sauce. <laughs> that cracked me up. Taken orally, calomel is a potent cathartic, which is a sophisticated way of saying it will violently empty out your guts into the toilet. Violently. Oi. <laughs> Constipation had long been associated with sickness, 
so opening the rectal gates of hell was a sign of righting the wrongs. The purging occurred elsewhere too, in the form of massive amounts of unattractive drooling, a symptom of mercury toxicity. A calomel consumer could give a rabid dog a run for its money. If the bad stuff was expelled via copious salivation, and so at a time when overflowing privies and gallons of loogies <laughs> were the answer to a multitude of ailments, physicians found their drug of choice in calomel. Benjamin Rush was one such physician. He pioneered the humane treatment of psychiatric patients, but unfortunately thought that mental illness was best treated with a dose of calomel. He suggested this for the treatment of hypochondria. In truth, Rush was replacing hypochondria with heavy metal toxicity. Another side effect was mercurial erethism, a neurological disorder that includes depression, anxiety, pathological shyness, and frequent sighing. Interesting. Together with tremors of the limbs, these symptoms were often called Mad Hatter's disease or Hatter's shakes for the hat-making workers who used mercury in the felting process. Wow. So now we know why they were Mad Hatters. Why it's a Mad Hatter. In addition, toxic patients could suffer from lost teeth, rotting jawbones, and gangrenous cheeks that produced facial holes exposing ulcerated tongues and gums. Well, facial holes and gangrenous cheeks was something I never needed to hear. <laughs> <laughs> Those were some words you didn't Those think were going to happen today. in my life. Wow. <laughs> okay, so what if success meant that Rush's patients turned into extremely moody Walking Dead extras? Unquote. So that was all a quote from the book. So super funny way wow. <laughs> of saying, you know, these really hard things that they did. So it's just, it's, it's a great book. So get the book. If you love history, it's just an awesome guide through the crazy world of medical profession. History plus a little dose of morbidity. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it wasn't until the mid 20th century that mercury compounds finally fell out of favor. So Dr. Rush would bleed his yellow fever patients. We talked about the purging part. So that's just one, one idea. That was, yeah, that, so that was one aspect. And the other part of his heroic plan would be to bleed his patients every day for a week, believing that they must be rid of around 80% of their oh, blood. 80%. So yellow fever causes a person to hemorrhage internally and sometimes out their eyes, nose. I mean, now so, we're taking more. Yes, with, you know, vomiting, diarrhea, and now we're going to drain them of their blood. He and he was very forceful and confident in his in his technique. Some of his patients did survive in spite of the yellow fever and in spite of his remedies. They for what I would call the epitome of the strong surviving. This belief caused a schism in the local medical community during the yellow fever outbreaks. Dr. Philip Singh Fisick supported Rush's belief. And when both contracted yellow fever during the epidemic of 1793, Rush bled himself and his friend. Both men recovered, though we know today that the bleeding played no part in their survival. <laughs> so, I don't know how anybody survived any of the stuff he did because yellow fever 
killed so many people on its own. Right. When Alexander Hamilton became ill, he and his wife were seen by another doctor who believed in the more gentle practice of nourishing and gentle tending. Quote, in his theory of bleeding and mercury, Hamilton wrote, I was ever opposed to my friend whom I greatly loved, but who had done much harm in the sincerest persuasion that he was preserving life, unquote. Hamilton did get well, and when they did, they referred many of their friends and others to this other doctor. And this really angered Dr. Rush, who was adamant that God had led him to his practices and that he was healing so many. It is unclear for obvious reasons how many were killed by yellow fever or by the loss of blood, but he stood by his practices. Later on, even the medical establishment found his treatments excessive. Members of the Philadelphia College of Physicians called his methods murderous and fit for a horse. Wow. Those speaking out against his practices pretty much ruined his medical practice. He was appointed treasurer of the U.S. Mint in 1797 and served until 1813. He did continue to teach and practice medicine until the end of his life. He became the professor of medical theory and clinical practice at the University of Pennsylvania in 1791. He was an advocate for scientific education for the masses, yes, even for women. Yeah, what a concept. <gasps> I know, right? He helped bring about public medical clinics to treat the poor. So again, so polar opposites, this guy with himself doing such good and then really doing harm. I do believe, though, that in his heart, that his intentions were good and that his heart was in the right place. He was trying to do. He felt like he was really helping. There's also that part of arrogance that where he, he could right. do no wrong and he wasn't going to be taking advice from anyone else. Mm -hmm. So another one of these strange dichotomies about Rush was that, you know, we've talked about he was a staunch abolitionist, but he also bought a slave. Which, like... Why? How? He, you know, and this was during later years of the war, and he had this slave for a number of years. And the man's name was William Gruber, and Rush did free him before the abolition society became active again after Franklin had come home from Europe. He didn't really write about it except to write about giving him his freedom. He did free him, so did he buy him so to get him out of a bad situation? Did he right. think, like, I can help this person by buying them, but then why wouldn't you immediately give them their freedom? Why wait? Yeah, what know. was going on there? I think that is a little weird. But in William Gruber's last days, Rush had him treated at the Pennsylvania hospital and even paid for his funeral. I guess he wrote about the relationship a little bit, but just, you know, kind of to show you that he was a complicated guy. Absolutely. It's just a mystery. It felt like there was a lot of kind of conflict, maybe about the times and his personal beliefs. In the spring of 1813, at the age of 67, Rush fell ill with a fever and died five days later in his home in Philadelphia. A firm believer in his therapeutic approach, Rush had himself bled twice during his final illness. Maybe he 
kind of ended up facilitating his own death. He was eulogized by Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, among others. Rush's wife, Julia Stockton, daughter of Richard Stockton, a judge and co-signer of the Declaration of Independence, survived him, as did his three daughters and six sons. Rush and his wife, Julia, had 13 children. His four other children had died in infancy. Wow. So the funeral of Benjamin Rush is something that almost every civic group of the time sent people to. It was described in the newspapers as being second only to George Washington's burial and Benjamin Franklin's burial. So Rush was not only one of the last of the signers of the Declaration who was still alive, but he was the most important doctor in America. So it was a big thing. On John Adams' appraisal of his good friend Benjamin Rush after Rush's death, he wrote, quote, Dr. Rush was a greater and better man than Dr. Franklin. Yet Rush was always persecuted and Franklin always adored. Rush had done infinitely more good to America than Franklin. Both had deserved a high rank among benefactors to their country and mankind, but Rush, by far the highest. It's an interesting kind of rivalry between them. I mean, it seemed like they were friends, but even seen in society as kind of comparing the two. One of his quotes was, freedom can exist only in the society of knowledge. Without learning, men are incapable of knowing their rights. Benjamin Rush. A couple more. I do not believe that the Constitution was the offspring of inspiration, but I am satisfied that it is as much the work of a divine providence as any of the miracles recorded in the Old and New Testament. And then he also said, I have alternately been called an aristocrat and a democrat. I am neither. I am a Christocrat. Christocrat. <laughs> As in Christocrat. So what do you think? Benjamin Rush, was he who you thought? No. I mean, admittedly, I didn't know very much about him. Right. Um, only the small plaque that was by his grave. And it mostly read just about his being the father of psychiatry. Uh, but no, I mean, a very interesting individual. Mm -hmm. You could see a lot of good and a lot of good intentions, but also kind of that heat and that downside of kind of superiority in a way. Yeah, the bullheaded. Yes. I have to be right. I can do no wrong. These are my methods. Do not question them. Mm -hmm. And what did that actually lead to? How far away did that kind of get him from his intent of helping and treating being right. so staunch in these. His personality right. got in the way of right. the help that people needed. So yeah, really interesting person. And I could just see so many good things that he did for people. But also with that kind yeah. of side of, of unknowing harm, though. I'm really glad that you were able to go there so we could talk about it for 4th of July. Me too. I'm glad that we were able to talk about it and actually do an episode on it because it was a very interesting cemetery and so much history and American history, which is a little bit more rare when it comes to cemeteries sometimes. Mm -hmm. 
We're newer. Not as old. We're still a baby country in a lot of ways. <laughs> and it's cool to be able to kind of get to those roots and these people that were there when it was built. Yeah. And we think we know them and we see their names on the Declaration of Independence and you know, we say the founding fathers, but how much do we really know about our founding fathers? Right. And maybe lesser known ones like Rush, you know, you see maybe his name on the declaration, but mm -hmm. there's so much more to them. And that's what lies beneath. This is Stones, Bones, and Shadows. You can see photos and more information about the cemeteries we explore and find our sources at stonesbonesandshadowspodcast.com. Also, don't forget to check us out on Facebook, like us on Instagram, and leave us a comment. We love to hear from our listeners. Voices and boundless energy is harder than.